Welcome to the University of New South Wales, Canberra, Australian Naval History video and podcast series, produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute. Thanks for joining us. For more information on this series, please visit the UNSW Canberra Naval Studies Group website. To find us, simply Google Naval Studies Group and UNSW Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. We hope you enjoy this podcast and return for others in the series. I'm Greg Swindon, Senior Naval Historical Officer at the Sea Power Centre Australia. This video and podcast episode discusses the Malayan Emergency and Confrontation. Between 1955 and 1960, the Royal Australian Navy joined with British New Zealand forces in what was known as the Malayan Emergency. This was a counterinsurgency operation against the Communist Party of Malaya. Just four years later, the RAN was again involved in countering Indonesian incursions in infiltrations into Malaysia and Singapore. Known as Confrontation, this campaign lasted until 1966. These two successful campaigns helped provide the security foundations for the development of Malaysia and Singapore. Yet the, the role of the RAN is not widely known, and we hope this episode shines a light on this sustained RAN commitment to Southeast Asia. To discuss the RAN's involvement in these conflicts, I'm joined today by Dr Ian Fenigworth, former RAN captain and author of Tiger Territory, the untold story of the RAN in Southeast Asia from 1948 to 1971. He served two tours in confrontation. Also joined by Dr Andrew Ross, an adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales and former operations research analyst with the Defence Science and Technology Organisation, who has written extensively on post-World War II Australian Defence Force operations in Southeast Asia. Commander Peter Cook-Russell, who as a lieutenant was executive officer of the minesweeper HMAS Teal during part of her deployment during confrontation, and also Commander Steve Yule, who also took part in confrontation when he was navigation and gunnery officer in HMAS Snipe. The ship was also squadron leader of the 16th Minesweeping Squadron. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, firstly, Andrew, I'll get you to lead off. Um, in the 1950s, what was the strategic situation in Southeast Asia? Okay, um, the most important factor is the collapse of the colonial system with Britain, France and Holland having to redefine their relationships in the area. The region is in a state of flux. Old power relationships and structures are breaking down. The second factor is the Cold War is at its height. Communist China is emerging as a great power. Communist uh, Vietnam has expelled France. Communism is on the rise throughout the region, including Cambodia, Malaya, Singapore and Indonesia. Britain, Australia and New Zealand formed the ANZAM Treaty as a response to security treaty. This develops into the security treaty of CETO, which involves Australia, Britain, USA, New Zealand, Pakistan, the Philippines, and Thailand, and France. That's the strategic situation. So we're living in very interesting times. Very disturbed times. Yeah. So I'll cut across to uh, Ian, who's joining us by phone. Um, was the military commitment that uh, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand uh, actually provided to the region? And this appears to me to be a very long running and still actually going on uh, deployment now. Yeah, you're quite right, Greg. Well, it started off uh, very fittingly. The Australians obviously were very concerned at what was happening in, in Malaya, having uh, experienced the Second World War and what happened when the British collapsed there. 
So they were taking a keen interest, and it seemed at one stage that the Brits were losing. Uh, they didn't they didn't have their act together, and the insurgency was fermented by the Communist Party of Malaya, which formed a thing called the Malayan Races and, uh, Liberation Army, which was a misnomer. They were mostly Chinese. The Chinese had been imported uh, to work the rubber plantations primarily, and that's where the, the uh, insurgency got strength. Um, what happened was that a fellow called Gerald Templer was posted out uh, to take charge of this, and he changed the, the, the structure of it. But nevertheless, uh, even though it looked as if the British might now win, um, Australians were very reluctant to get involved. You have to remember that in 1950 we had forces <coughs> fighting in... From 1950 we had forces fighting in Korea, and um, the best that Australia could come up with was uh, was some uh, bombers, Lincoln bombers they sent up. There was great reluctance in Australia to be seen to be involved in these anti-colonial wars, and there was not a clear opinion as to whether this was an anti-colonial war or, in fact, a legitimate effort by Britain to uh, to save its its uh, its colony in, in Malaya. Okay, Andrew. So you've explained that you know we're living in a state of flux here in in the 1950s. So how did the Malayan emergency actually develop? Well. The, to some extent, I'm going to be cutting across a little bit of what Ian has already said. Um, but it starts with the collapse of British power during the first, Second World War, uh, which leads to a legacy of a surge of anti-colonialism in the area and a strong inc and increased desire by most of the peoples in the area for mm -hmm. independence. Now, uh, one, a couple of factors to keep in mind is that in Malaya, 51% of the population are Malays. Um, they generally favoured a gradual progression towards independence and did not favour communism. Um, between 30 and 35% of the population are Chinese. Uh, these are heavily influenced by the Malayan Communist Party, mm. or at least some of them certainly are, substantial portions. Uh, the Malayan Communist Party wanted early and complete independence. Um, it had led the main resistance effort against the Japanese and controlled the big unions in Singapore and Malaya. Now, British attempts to limit the power of the uh, Malayan Communist Party precipitated large-scale strikes. Uh, the British crackdown on these led to the Malayan Communist Party turning to armed struggle using its uh, stockpiled World War II weapons. Uh, Malaya and Singapore are quite rapidly reduced to chaos, uh, leading to the declaration of the emergency in 1948. And the Malayan emergency went through until well into the, to the 60s? Indeed. Yeah. It's officially declared in 1958, but it does actually go on until 1960. Yeah. And back to you. Um, so what's the RN involvement in the, in the Malayan emergency? What, what is the Australian Navy providing? Well, in, um, in 1963, uh, sorry, 53, um, the, the, the British suggested that there needed to be a concentrated, coordinated Commonwealth response force to deal with any uh, extent of uh, communist uh, power or, or troublemaking into the CETO region. Uh, you've mentioned CETO. Uh, this was to be the, the, a, a reserve of forces, both uh, naval, uh, land and, and, uh, and air, uh, to, to respond to requests from CETO for, for a force to oppose communist ex expansionism. Um, Australians were a bit reluctant again to get involved in this, but also in the end decided it was probably a good thing. And so we announced uh, that the, uh, the Strategic Reserve came into effect 
1955, and we immediately offered two destroyers, uh, which were in fact deployed to the area. So they were the first ships, the first Australian commitments on the scene. Um, as well as that, um, there was some talk about intelligence. Now, it's a sensitive area, but nevertheless, uh, it was part of the five eyes, which we now, I think, know a lot about, uh, arrangements after, uh, post-war uh, that Australia had a responsibility for uh, intercepting traffic in this area, and one place to do it was Singapore, and we had a number of uh, communications personnel in Singapore uh, to assist in, in that task. What we did in, during the emergency was, uh, as I said in a book, there were six things, which is a bit complicated, but uh, firstly, of course, there was the, the, the business of patrolling, uh, making sure that the uh, what was thought to be infiltration by the Communist Party from China was stopped uh, at, at, the, at the sea border. Uh, secondly, it was, of course, uh, to uh, provide active support for land forces in the form of naval gunfire support, uh, which happened on a couple of occasions. Uh, also, we had a training role to, de to develop uh, the forces in, in Malaya, the, the, the Malayan forces. Um, there was also an important one of showing the flag, and I know some people mock this as an excuse for cocktail parties, but in fact, this was, this was Australia had a policy of forward defence and the front line was going to be Southeast Asia, so it was necessary for Australians to become aware of Southeast Asia and the peoples that populate it, but as well as that to demonstrate Australian solidarity with, with, the, with the forces uh, on the right side of the equation. And uh, that was an important role and one which was played rather well, so that from being an unknown in Southeast Asia over the period of the emergency uh, through ship visits and other activities, the Australians became um, well-established and well-known and well-respected. Importantly, um, they became identified as separate from the British, and that'll come up later in the discussion. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think this is uh, our longest-running uh, military commitment overseas, uh, regardless of what some people might think of Afghanistan at the moment. But we've been in Southeast Asia since, as you say, the, uh, the mid-50s. Andrew... Um, so New Zealand, Australia and Britain are committed forces to, to Malaya to, to ensure it uh, uh, remains non-communist. What's the uh, ultimate outcome of the emergency? Yes, uh, Britain was forced to concede that Malaya had to be granted independence. Uh, Malay promi Britain promised the Malays a non-communist Malay-dominated federation of Malay states. Uh, this divided the Malays from the Chinese population and the MCP, the, the Malaysian, Malayan Communist Party. The MCP was restricted to support from Chinese farmers on the fringes of cultivated areas and rubber plantations. That's about 600,000 of them. Although it took some years, and I'm simplifying a little here, but um, although it took some years to work out the tactics, British Commonwealth forces eventually cut off the MCP guerrillas <coughs> from their food sources and pushed them deep into the jungle. Uh, Within that context, Britain recruited Chinese into the special branch of the police, who then orchestrated propaganda campaigns to encourage desertion of the MCP guerrillas. By 1958, the MCP guerrillas had been pushed over the Thai border in much reduced numbers. The emergency was over after 10 years. Malaya became independent in August 1957. Mm. 
And I think Templer, who was the British general who was uh, in charge, he tended to use more of the police force to do activities than the military to... to yes, well, the whole, the whole battle comes down to one of intelligence, uh, knowing where the enemy might be and what are they going to do. And it has to be said that for the first years, uh, the British Commonwealth forces were just not in the game at all, and the mayhem reigned. Um, so Templar put a lot of emphasis on uh, intelligence, which included mainly the police. The police are always your best source of intelligence if they're properly connected to your <coughs> community, which is why, in fact, they started connecting and co uh, recruiting Chinese. There were no Chinese in the special branch at that stage, at the beginning of the emergency. But once they started to get them in, they started to make connections with the Chinese community, particularly the Chinese settlers on the fringes of the, uh, of the various settlements who were the main supporters of the MCP. And once that started to happen, intelligence started to flow. It also meant that they were much more able to guess where the food was coming from. And this is where you get the village program where they start to set up protected villages and people can't just walk out and food can't move out of the villages. And so the, the guerrillas get cut off from their food. Whenever you're dealing with a, uh, a guerrilla emergency, food is the key. You've got to be able to have your security forces can stand up and match it with the guerrillas, but it's food. If you control food, the guerrillas inevitably start to lose their cohesion and they spend their time looking for food, not fighting you and committing outrages. So he starved them out? Yes. It's what happened in Vietnam as well, okay. in Phuc Thuy province. Okay. Um, turning now to confrontation, um, Ian, um, how did confrontation come about? Well... <laughs> Uh, big question. I'll try and answer it simply. The um, the British, uh, we think we now think of Malaya as, as an entity. It in fact wasn't. The British in, in, inherited or, or gained in some strange ways um, control of the of the Malay Peninsula, and as well as that, they had other territories in in East what is now East Malaysia, which is North Borneo, so Sarawak and Sabah in particular, and also. They had a protectorate over the Sultanate of Brunei, which is in between the two. So this, this mishmash of, of, of colonial uh, bits and pieces left over from the Raj um, was now starting to, uh, to, to be granted independence. And in, in 1961, um, Tunku Abdul Rahman, who was the first uh, Prime Minister of, of Malaya, um, suggested that why didn't... Uh, the British think about including their North Borneo territories and Singapore in a, a new nation called Malaysia. Uh, now, his reason for this, and, and Andrew has touched upon it, there's a very strong and powerful, particularly economically powerful, Chinese influence in, in Malaya itself. And if, if you added Singapore, which was almost completely, or about 90% Chinese, uh, to the mix, then you'd have more Chinese than Malays in Malaya, so that wasn't going to work. And in particular, a fellow called Lee Kuan Yew, who we've all heard of since, uh, was very keen to have Singaporean independence, so he wasn't that keen to join Malaya. Uh, the, by adding the, the, East, uh, the Eastern Malayan, the, the Borneo territories, it would swing the balance back in favour of Malays or at least non-Chinese because some of the people who live in East Malaysia are not, in fact, Malays. Uh, and that would be a, a benefit to Malaysia. It would, it would establish the Malay supremacy uh, while neatly counterbalancing the Chinese influence from Singapore. Um, this was discussed uh, widely, and everybody thought it was a pretty good idea. In fact, uh, it went to a plebiscite, 
and and the people who were going to be included in the new Malaysia actually agreed that it was a good idea. Uh, two problems then emerge. One was uh, from the Philippines, uh, which has a historical claim over Sabah in the in the uh, the east, the northeast of of, of the island of Borneo, um, and they thought that they had they should have a they should take over Sabah, which was not acceptable to the people who lived there, nor of course to the British. The other people who objected were the Indonesians, who of course occupied the remainder of the island of Borneo, which they call Kalimantan, and they expected to take over the British North Borneo territories and incorporate them into Indonesia. That led to a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, uh, and the United Nations became involved and was asked to conduct the plebiscite uh, to make sure that the people in the, in the territories about to be incorporated into Malaysia agreed to it. Um, the Indonesians took a sort of cautious view to begin with, although they didn't think it was a very good idea. They weren't going to oppose it. And then suddenly, in 1963, they decided um, that they were going to confront uh, the formation of, of uh, Malaysia. In, before that, in 1962, uh, very probably instigated by uh, Indonesia, there had been riots in Brunei, the Sultanate, um, which showed that how... how um, dis disruptive uh, Indonesian influence could be uh, in the formation of Malaysia, which of course created a problem, particularly for Australia. The British uh, were clearly uh, intent on, on leaving the area, um, but of course they had to make sure they had their bases and so forth protected, and they were mostly in Singapore. But on top of that, Australia have had supported the independence of Indonesia, so we now had a situation where our largest um, uh, neighbour, Indonesia, was about to uh, take apparently military action against another Commonwealth country. It was sort of between uh, a rock and a hard place. But uh, the Australian cabinet came down in favour of supporting Malaysia, uh, which is how we got involved in confrontation. Thanks, Ian. It's a, it's a very complex subject, but I think you've explained it quite well there. And the leader of Indonesia at the time, that was Sukarno, I believe? Yes, it was uh, President Sukarno, who of course was an uh, independence leader from the time of the Japanese occupation in the 1940s and had led the country uh, somewhat erratically. They, they had a lot of problems in Indonesia as well from uh, dissident groups who didn't really want to be part of Indonesia. And a, a great, throughout the late 1950s, there were a great number of military operations within Indonesia itself to stamp out these, uh, these hotbeds of, uh, of dissidents. Um, Aceh comes to mind, and of course uh, there was a group called Darul Islam, the, the home of Islam uh, in Java itself. Okay, thank you. Peter Cook-Russell, we'll now look at uh, what the Navy actually did during confrontation. So we deployed ships to the Far East Strategic Reserve, we've done that for a number of years, um, but how well prepared was the RAN really for these operations? I think we were very lucky at the time, we'd already acquired the six tonne class minesweepers they turned out in the long run to be very useful patrol boats in the confined waters around Malaya. And uh, the uh, close area around the Singapore Strait in particular where they could manoeuvre easily and they were small and they were very resilient little boats. The, uh, um, the employment was uh, a bit of a surprise, I think, as far as the crews of those were concerned, and I'm not sure that they were ideally prepared uh, 
when they first went there, but uh, they soon learnt by experience. We had other vessels as well. I'm sure we had destroyer escorts, uh, uh, bridge design vessels operating there as well. You had normally had two destroyers, and HMAS Melbourne doing an annual 30-day trip up there. Um, but they were comparatively large ships and were much more suited to operating in the more open waters of the South China Sea and possibly north of Malacca Strait in the Bay of Bengal. And the RAN at the time was you know, operating a lot of British equipment. Uh, a lot of the officers and sailors had been trained uh, with the Royal Navy. Yeah. So was it just a smooth transition to continuing to work with the, with the Royal Navy and well, the logistics system that well, they had? The Australian Navy and the Royal Navy were very compatible. And uh, there was uh, one minesweeper there manned by the Kiwis. And uh, we all fitted together. The Kiwis actually borrowed a, a minesweeper from the RN to put in their participation. But no, we had no problems integrating. Uh, most of us knew each, the junior level, the officers knew each other from their training days over in the UK. And so there was really uh, no uh, problems in getting together and working properly together and understanding each other. Yeah, good. Andrew, uh, you've written a paper on confrontation in which you describe it as a maritime guerrilla war. Can you elaborate on that, please? Yes, <coughs> excuse me. Um, we have to point out that this concerns the Indonesian raids across the Malacca and Singapore Straits. North Borneo was a low-intensity land guerrilla war, so we're not talking about that. Um, the purpose of the Indonesian raids, there were three of them. The first purpose was to disrupt the Malayan fishing industry through piracy. Uh, the second was to insert saboteurs into Singapore and Malaya. And the third was to launch armed groups to seize uh, liberated areas in Malaya and rally locals there to oppose the central Malaysian government. Between 1963 and 66, the Indonesians launched over 300 incidents at sea with nearly 200 related incidents on land in mainland Malaya and Singapore. The forces the Indonesians needed for this result was only 1,500 men. Now, this lopsided result occurred because the British government made the policy decision not to, not to retaliate with raids of its own against Indonesian bases for fear of escalation and world criticism. This meant that the Indonesians had the initiative and could choose the time and place of raids and not have to consider the defence of their own bases. This is to say only small forces were needed with small, fast kotex, that is, small fishing vessels. Commonwealth forces had to be strong everywhere in the Malacca and Singapore Straits. This is to say they needed much larger naval and land forces than the Indonesians. As it turned out, somewhere between one-third and one-half of the British fleet ended up in the Far East in this problem. Over 40 of these vessels were coastal defence vessels, that is to say coastal minesweepers and frigates. And and there were also more than 45,000 ground troops, and that later went up to 70,000. The tactics of the Indonesians, therefore, defined the, these operations as maritime guerrilla war. This is further supported by the imbalance of forces. Where British Commonwealth adjusted an aggressive response, I should say adopted an aggressive response in North Borneo with the Claret raids, Indonesia was forced to greatly increase its forces there so that they roughly equaled the Commonwealth forces in the end. Okay. So we've got uh, two spheres of that campaign, what's happening in North Borneo yes. and what's happening in the Malacca and Singapore Straits. That's right, and, and they're two quite different, really. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, Ian, uh, 
Back to you, What's the, what were the command arrangements for this operation at the time uh, and, and what role were the, the RAN ships assigned? Yeah, Greg, I'll, I'll get on in a sec. I just want to add to something what Andrew, uh, Andrew said. Um, there was, still is as far as a, a traditional, what was called barter trade arrangement between particularly the island of Sumatra, the Indonesian province of Sumatra and Singapore. Also family relationships across the Strait of Malacca. So we had Malaysians who had Indonesians relatives and we had this uh, constant uh, stream of ships little boats taking basically primary produce to Malaya and Singapore uh, and returning with manufactured goods. These were preyed upon by Indonesian officials who, who stole their money and their goods and there wasn't much they could do about it. So the, the Indonesians had a, uh, a basis for uh, interrupting that uh, traffic without even trying. On top of that, of course, we have the traditional historical uh, piracy situation around the Ryu Archipelago office at Singapore. The command arrangements were a little complicated because Malaya was a sovereign country, or now Malaysia. So there was an operations command in Kuala Lumpur, uh, but the man doing all the work was the Commander-in-Chief Far East, a British officer based in Singapore. Um, he commanded all the forces, and that included the, the Malaysian forces, which came under him. Um, and then he sub subdivided his command down as the, the chain as you would normally expect. Um, the Far East Fleet was his major role, uh, major uh, uh, maritime uh, uh, force, but he had a very strong support from the air. There were a lot of uh, British and Malaysian, in fact, uh, air assets to assist with the maritime battle. Um, his, as well as that, uh, the Singapore didn't have an armed force except uh, the Marine Police. And a number of uh, Singaporean Marine Police <coughs> vessels were also involved in the effort to stop the infiltration. Uh, we uh, were working, uh, the minesweeper was working under a fellow called uh, uh, Captain Inshore Flotilla, uh, who was responsible for all the patrol boats and minesweepers operating in the strait and, and particularly off the, off the north coast of, of, uh, of North Borneo. Um, as well as that, uh, we've mentioned the destroyers and frigates. They had another role, which was, uh, of course, because of their greater capacity for taking on tasks. Uh, they, were, they were guard ships, and they established a position called the Tawau Guard Ship in the far eastern extremity of Sabah, uh, where, where we literally were staring down gun sites at Indonesian forces on the, on the other side of the border. Uh, and the job of that uh, ship was to take charge of the forces in the area. All in all, um, we, we established a number of other positions within the command structure. So importantly, for the first time, we had Australian officers getting experience in both in the use, the collection and use of intelligence in maritime operations in, in Southeast Asia. And, and a number of other most important uh, uh, positions in, in supporting the force and in particular we might mention the people in a British depot ship called Mulloth Kintyre who were essentially responsible for the maintenance of all the minesweepers operating in the area. Thank you. Steve, um, the RAN took delivery of the six-tonne class minesweepers in 1962 and within two years that squadron was deployed to, uh, to confrontation. How suitable really were these, these minesweepers uh, for the job that they were given? Well, they had advantages and disadvantages as Peter just alluded to, they were high-sided, which gave you a good 
view of these smaller compots and sampans that to us the threat. Um, <clears throat> they had 30 crew, which gave you a bit of flexibility for boarding parties. They were able to embark boats, which uh, assault boats, six metre aluminium boats, that's what I think. Um, <clears throat> and so they were a step up from the Keras class patrol boats that the Malaysians had, a 30 metre boat, which was a precursor to the attack class. But the disadvantages were they really, they really were a tender ship. They weren't suited to long ocean passages and several of them broke down on the way, A, from UK to Australia and B, from Australia to, um, to the operating area in Singapore. Um, they were modified when we bought them with the addition of stabilisers, roll dampers, um, air conditioning, and they had the 975 radar and they had Deltic marine diesels, all of which were uh, prone to failure, the radar particularly. And um, like Snipe had three engine changes in six months, very efficiently done by the Singapore Dockyard or Mullacantyre support staff that Ian's mentioned. But the radar really was a, a uh, because you had um, the patrols, if you, at, at night often you, you'd end the Singapore at Johor Strait approaches, you'd anchor and you'd use your radar because of dark, as you understand, that was the primary means of, uh, of detection. Um, and the, the ROPs, reports of proceedings, are littered with uh, occasions of the radar failing. But um, they were wooden hulled and uh, that had advantages and disadvantages. Uh, people were worried about the damage that a sampan maybe with explosives in it would have caught a wooden hull. Um, but by and large, they were, uh, they were not fit for, not you know, designed for the purpose, but they were w well prepared and, 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 and performed very well. They, they also, of course, um, this experience um, informed the later development of the Australian patrol boat force. Oh, good. Peter, you've got something to add to that? Yes, as Steve mentioned, the engine change problem. And one of the interesting things is that when the boat's operating out of Singapore, uh, if you had an engine problem, you could change the engine overnight and get into the store space and go alongside Mull of Kintyre, mm -hmm. have the engine out and a new one put in and sail the next day at four o'clock in the afternoon and be back at work. Um, putting the same problem to Garden Island a little bit later, they reckon it would take them seven days. Okay, so it was a pretty slick uh, logistics operation. Yes, it was. Mm. Uh, Peter, you were in Teal, uh, another one of the minesweepers, and you had a, a fairly uh, long and interesting deployment uh, during confrontation. Mm. Uh, particularly, uh, your uh, your commanding officer Gus Murray uh, distinguished himself uh, in an action in the Singapore Strait. Could you uh, give us some insights into that? Yeah, Gus Murray uh, took Teal up to. Singapore uh, at the beginning of Teal's term there and he opted to remain on board for 18 months. And I joined halfway through that 18 months and he had all his exciting times before I joined it. Um, there was one other person on board who opted to do the same thing and that was one of the cooks. And so between he and the cook and Gus Murray, uh, they were the continuity people who uh, told us what it was really like. Yeah. Um, but uh, the uh, patrol routine was 
interesting, and as Steve just said, we, those on night patrols would work hard through the night and then go and find a quiet anchorage and go to sleep for the day. Um, we had a day patrol up at the uh, northern end of the Malacca Strait and we came across a barter trader heading from Sumatra and we believed he was going to Kuala Lumpur. And we intercepted this particular barter trader and got him to come alongside and he could see that they were basically trading goods from one side to the other. And they had a monkey on board. And we uh, thought that perhaps they shouldn't take the monkey into Malaya because of quarantine problems. So we decided we'd look after the monkey ourselves. And we kept him on board for the rest of our trip uh, in Singapore and uh, took him back with us to New Guinea, where we handed him over to HMAS Gull. And they said, took over this delightful little pigtail uh, monkey um, whose name was uh, Fred Malacca. <laughs> Captain insisted on the Malacca bit there. I like the Fred bit. <laughs> and uh, he was a delightful thing, only about six months old and uh, developed a delightful taste for Australian beer and our farewell cocktail party in Singapore. He showed that he could drink brandy and ginger ale was the best of us and he had a little hammock at the end of the 40, 60 gun barrel. Um, he'd curl up and go to sleep there every 20 minutes during our cocktail parties. But he uh, really broke the uh, state of affairs which was going on because after the December operations where Teal really performed and she had her last um, interaction with the Indonesian Armed Forces in February 1965, um, things went very quiet, and apart from the barter trader, that was the only one that I actually saw during my time, which was from August 1965 through to February 1966. Um, and it was uh, so having a monkey on board brightened the ship's company up quite a bit and gave us quite an interesting diversion to study the habits of a monkey. But the monkey never came back to Australia? No, he was passed on to Gull, and I believe. Uh, they didn't quite know how to handle a monkey and he was allowed to do things which they didn't like and I think he went, he didn't pass his swimming test. Yeah, okay. Uh, even though you weren't on board when uh, the incident happened with Gus Murray in, yeah. the, in the Singapore Strait, can you elaborate on, on what happened there? Yeah, well, Till had a couple of actions in December, but the main one in which uh, Gus Murray, I think, got his DSC was a second one and they intercepted two patrol boats travelling across the strait around the, the area of Raffles Light. And uh, as they uh, chased them and illuminated them at 300 yards range, one of them turned around and headed straight back to Indonesia. But the second one opened fire on the uh, illumination which was provided by a 10-inch signal lamp which both, uh, we had two, one on the port side, one on the starboard side. And the bloke who trained the uh, lamp had a stick about that long, which was attached to the lamp. Well, obviously, uh, anybody seeing the lamp kind of would have a shot at it. Mm. So they uh, gave him this remote control system. A stick, about a two <laughs> foot long stick. <laughs> which uh, worked very well because nobody suffered and the, the lamp was put out um, but then 
we had our own system of flares and uh, there was a short uh, small arms engagement with the uh, sampan and it was eventually pulled up and uh, I think three people in the Indonesian side died as a result of that. A few bullets hit teal but being of wooden construction the, uh, they were well suited to that kind of action at sea. And Gus Murray, I think, was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which was the only decoration to the RAN during confrontation. Yes. He and uh, another uh, commanding officer of one of the British ton class minesweepers, one DSC, and I think that was about the only two that were given out during that whole period of action. Right. Steve, have you got any comments on that? Yes, um, I know that uh, Gus's was the only decoration, but there are awards as well. And um, Jim Dixon, who was a CEO of Gull, was awarded an MBE as a result of his command of the ship in confrontation. Yeah. Ian, uh, you had uh, two deployments to confrontation. Have you got any, uh, any insights into what occurred uh, during your time there? Um, well, it was, it was hot. <laughs> the, the ship might have been air-conditioned, but the cockroaches on board headed for the freezers. I mean, they, they knew how hot it was. Um, it was also extremely uh, tedious, uh, but you never knew when the next uh, boat you pulled over to inspect was going to turn into a bad glow. And this was day and night. We, we operated day and night off North Borneo in particular uh, in, the east, in the western division of Sarawak. Um, we, uh, when we, when we uh, first arrived, we only had three officers on board, commanding officer XO and myself. And uh, the commanding officer stood the standing morning watch and Exo and I did the rest and all our other work as well. So we were pretty frazzled. Uh, and then the British, or we, we arranged for two British midshipmen to join us, which created more problems because they didn't know what the hell, you know, uh, they couldn't find their bum with both hands and they had to be supervised. So until we got a fourth officer sent up from Australia, which eventually happened, it was e extremely hard work. Um, the, uh, the, the issue we always worried about, and we haven't mentioned it yet, was that the, the Indonesians had got from the Russians a very generous package of, of armaments, and uh, things we were most scared of were called the Komars, the, the missile boats, which would have uh, turned a, a, a tongue-class minesweeper into a pile of matchsticks if it had ever managed to land a missile. We, we didn't actually see one, although I think Teal saw some, uh, we didn't see one at all, but it was always we were always worried what was going to come, come around the corner uh, and confront us, uh, literally. Um, so that was, it was also a fairly tense time. Um, the, serving in Yarra, my second tour, was, was a big change. Uh, I was communications officer and also the transmitting station officer, the guy who actually orders the guns to shoot uh, down in the, down in the uh, computer control room where the guns were run from. And, uh, I mean, the air conditioning there worked and, I mean, we had, we had a proper watch-keeping system and we had better command and control and communications. We had more duties as well, but nevertheless it was easier to, uh, uh, to perform in, in a frigate than it was in a little minesweeper. One interesting thing was at night, of course, we always steamed darkened. Um, two two uh, recollections I have was steaming up the Malacca Strait, which then as now is absolutely chock full of traffic, uh, darkened, um, which was quite a challenge for the poor officer of the watch. 
uh, and being illuminated by by a British merchant ship, which I thought was brave. Um, but nevertheless, it was, it was a great training in, in, in keeping out of trouble in, in the dark. Uh, and the second one was uh, patrolling off East Division, off, off uh, Sabah in, in uh, North Borneo. Uh, we came across an, another ship unlit, and uh, we went to action stations. I think it was the very first time I went to action stations for real, and uh, you can imagine the, the heightened tension that that caused. And it turned out to be a Philippines uh, patrol boat that had decided to sneak down into Sabah to see what was happening. And so there was a standoff. Uh, we didn't actually illuminate it with our gunnery radar, but uh, we had it all ready to do. But, but that was diffused. Uh, so it's interesting to see that the Philippines uh, still wanted to uh, have their say in, in what happened. And I think Andrew will cover, cover that when he completes the story of confrontation. Um, in um, in Tawau, I fired the first and only live rounds at an enemy uh, in 35 years of naval service. So uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't just play; it was for real. Uh, and as I said, we we did actually confront the Indonesians across the bo- border. They had uh, dug tanks in as their artillery, uh, and and we were armed with our 4.5 inch guns. And I think a tank shell would have gone straight through us. But nevertheless, um, my, my recommend, recollections are that uh, uh, particularly that once they got their act together, uh, the British were very good at organising the response to confrontation. And uh, I've looked uh, in my research at the orders we received called uh, MALPOs, Malaysia, I don't know, operating orders, um, how good they are, how good they were, how good they are now. And uh, I think I think it's a, a lesson that uh, we were lucky to have good good uh, teachers, and I hope that the Royal Australian Navy has hoisted that aboard. Thanks, Ant. Um, Steve, you were there twice, I think, once on board Snipe and then again on board Hawk. What was going no, on? There? No, no, I was only in Snipe, but uh, Hawk was with us. We were we were a senior ship, and uh, Hawk had a very interesting period, March, April. Uh, 66. She was anchored off uh, Raffles Light and fired upon by Indonesian, I guess like 80 millimetre or something like that. They had two bursts of four rounds and he skedaddled pretty quick. John Foster was the captain. Then in the position where Ian's just mentioned at Tawau, at, at night you used to go down to a, uh, a position at confronting as it was. Um, the Indonesian dug in tanks and artillery. Um, he was there one time and um, the Malaysian artillery who were further back uh, lobbed a few 105 millimetre rounds near him within 100 metres. They, they solved that problem. But later on, all in the space of about three weeks, he was fired on from this island um, and it was assessed as 37 millimetre um, anti-aircraft gun used in a sort of surface mode. But the practice was in the, when you went down to the night anchorage, um, you slipped the, you broke the cable and had it on a buoy so that you could get away quickly without having to heave the anchor in, weigh the anchor. Um, and as you went down there, you gave them uh, four rounds of 40 millimetre bofers, not at their actual emplacements, but at a uh, another island full of vegetation just to signal your arrival and, and presence. 
and show what you could do. Yes. Yeah. But Hawke also had, a, I think, an incident on board where uh, one of the sailors did some shooting as well. Yes, the gunfight <laughs> at Samporna. Samporna is a small village just north of Tawau on the east coast of Sabah. And um, Hawke had gone there in a sort of uh, a quasi-civil action, uh, with a quasi-civil action objective. Um, some of these east coast towns were subject to piracy uh, for the Sulu pirates. Um, and the little towns would sort of, like in medieval days, stand to at sunset from about 1700 to 1900. The police and you know any other civil uh, forces would be on alert. Um, but anyhow, uh, Foster went there and um, he was anchored off about 500 metres and he gave leave, and they're going to have a reception that night, and he gave leave and um, Abel Seaman Williams, who was the gunner's party in charge of small arms, so he was the expert. And now he was a bit of a, a rogue and had been in trouble before, leave breaking and the like, but he went ashore and uh, at about 1300 and uh, proceeded to uh, get himself inebriated um, uh, with alternative scotch spirits but it, it could have been a local native brew of you know particular potency and beer um, his shipmates uh, sort of tried to slow him down a bit but he seemed determined to um, to create an effect he then seemed later in the afternoon to become sleepy or whatever so they manhandled him back on board uh, with a view that he'd be put in his bunk and observed you know as what a standard routine for drunken sailors returning on board. However, on approaching the ship and the ladder, the jumping ladder, he sprung to life, uh, rushed up to the bridge, um, grabbed an Owen gun, which is nine millimetre submachine gun, and some ammunition. This was freely available in the ship and it was a standard practice throughout all the minesweepers. Um, there was a duty watch, there were people who were supposed to be in charge of it. So he grabbed his nine millimetre Owen gun and uh, started to fire um, at people and everybody sort of scattered and all the rest of it. Um, then the, you know, the whole ship became aware of what was happening. Um, the leading sick birth attendant, one bar his name was, he tried to talk him out of it by an upper deck microphone and stuff like that. Anyhow, the rest of the ship's company and officers or everybody retreated to the cafeteria with some sort of little minor citadel. But um, Williams kept firing at sounds and stuff like that. And the mine mill was going through the teak deck. And it was also hitting the mono metal, you know, the aluminium structure and that sort of thing. And as it, it would then create a mono metal splinter as well as other teak splinters, wooden splinters. And it went through the deck and the, here they all were huddled in the cafeteria plotting the next move and the bullets were coming through. Um, there was an, uh, uh, an idea that they would hose him down with a, with a fire hose. But in order to do this, you had to go to the engine room to boost the pressure on the fire pump and that meant it would expose whoever was, had to dart from the cafeteria to the engine room hatch. So they abandoned that idea. Then called for volunteers and uh, a couple two petty officers, an officer and another sailor were armed. They had Smith and Wesson th uh, pistols and um, 
caused a bit of a diversion and one petty officer uh, managed to wing him in the neck, uh, which brought him down. It was only a, a graze. But um, they then sort of restrained him um, and found out that he'd shot himself in the foot as well. It lasted about 40 minutes. He fired 336 rounds. Um, it's just amazing that no one was killed or wounded. He was then, having been restrained, he was taken to Derwent, which was the guard ship that Ian was explaining in Yarra's place. Um, he then was evacuated to Singapore, then back to Australia. Um, he was uh, classified by some naval medical psychiatrist, whatever, as um, sane, if that's the word. In other words, Foster expected that he was fit to plead and would be brought to book. And a month later, he was um, dismissed from the service. Service is no longer required or unfit for naval service. So he was never brought to book. Um, and this was uh, John Foster, who's dead now, one of his great regrets. Um, there was no counselling. Uh, there was no sort of... There was a little board of inquiry on board Derwent, but all it really came up with was that there was too much access to the small arms. But this kid was the gunner's... You know, the small arms, you know, a guru. He had the keys. It wouldn't have stopped him, sort of thing. But so they tightened up that. But um, uh, Foster's written a very illuminating book called uh, "Hands to Boarding Stations." In that, he does regret this lack of counselling and proper analysis, and you know, had the, the other guy not being brought to book. But they had a very. That was. Um, he was fired on by the Indonesians on the, at the raffles on the 13th of March. This was on the 31st of March. And then in the first week of April, he enjoyed the rounds from the Malaysian artillery. And the, the, so they had a pretty busy little couple of weeks in, uh, in Hawke. Yeah. Very lucky that uh, no, one was, no one was hurt, other than Smith. Peter, quickly. Yes, I, earlier I mentioned that we had two people who stayed on for 18 months and uh, we had a similar incident to what Steve had it's the other way around one of the second person the cook who decided to stay for 18 months he started going around the bend a bit and uh, one night um, he was found swimming around the ships alongside in the store space and in Singapore he's very lucky he wasn't um, killed by somebody shooting him or somebody throwing a one and a quarter pound scare charge over the side near him but he uh, you know, we recovered him and he went back to Australia and we really don't know what happened to him after that. Mm. Ian, um, I don't think we can uh, finish with confrontation without talking about the establishment of the, the Royal Malaysian Navy and the RAN's role in that activity because it wasn't just RAN, Royal Navy and New Zealanders uh, working in confrontation. No, that's right, and uh, it's an amazing story, and very people know, few people know about it. The, um, the the British had established a kind of a naval auxiliary force from the 1930s, um, but when with when the uh, uh, country was granted independence in 1957, the Royal Malayan Navy was formed out of out of these odds and sods, bits and pieces, reservists, and so forth. Um, the, the, uh, the Malayans weren't happy with what the British were providing by way of uh, leadership and training, so they approached the Australians. And in 1960, we sent the first of uh, four senior officers up to take charge of, of the Royal Malayan and then Malaysian Navy. Um, 
famously it was uh, it was Captain Bill Dovers who uh, organised uh, the Malaysians t- uh, into the British uh, naval training system at Dartmouth, the, the, the Britannia Royal Naval College, where uh, I met them, and uh, I mean we formed uh, lifelong uh, friendships there, which came to the fore during confrontation, of course, because we were in the same place at the same time. Um, but, but Bill also ordered the Vospers that, uh, that uh, Steve referred to, the Vosper patrol boats, fast patrol boats, uh, lightly armed, but nevertheless uh, more than a match for the, for the barter traders they were having to deal with. But his ma- main problem was, of course, to try and create uh, the ethos of a navy, and he, he set out from the very beginning to say, well, we're going to get rid of the Royal Navy symbols and, and, and customs and replace them with uh, those more more ethnically suitable to to Malaya and Malaysia, which he succeeded in. So the the outcome was that when confrontation started in 1963-64, um, there were trained Malaysian officers uh, who didn't take command straight away, uh, but there were also the the, the bases the for a, a proper naval organisation to support the operations. Uh, he was followed by, uh, by uh, Tony Sinnott, who became a Chief of Defence Force in Australia, uh, who carried on the, the good work, and he also introduced uh, Australian officers who took command of, of, of uh, Malay, Malayan Malaysian ships on operations. Uh, as well as that, a, a great uh, number of, of trainers were sent up to train the new Navy, uh, whose main base was in Singapore, which was interesting when Singapore declared itself out of Malaysia. Uh, but nevertheless, they continued their work, and they they covered areas uh, from uh, you know, obviously warfare and weapons training, but right through uh, electrical engineering, um, maintenance, the uh, the logistics system, the logistics manuals had to be written from scratch. Uh, clearance diving was another area in which we provided assistance to the Malaysians and hydrography. So wherever the Malaysian Navy appeared, uh, either the people on board had been trained largely by Australians or in fact the ships were commanded by Australians throughout confrontation. A uh, remarkable story, it, it didn't finish until 1967 when uh, the Malaysians appointed their first uh, Indigenous uh, Chief of Naval Staff. So um, it's, it was, a, it, and, and the exchange of trainers continued beyond that point. So um, it, I think last were probably in the 1970s. So it was a, a big effort by the Royal Australian Navy, and I think the results uh, speak for themselves. Thanks, Ant. Andrew, finally, confrontation ends. Uh, how does it end, and what's your overall assessment of the campaign? <coughs> I might take those two questions in turn, if I may. Uh, the Maritime War um, was contained. Um, piracy against the fishing industry was not controlled. It actually surges and uh, two or three hundred incidents take place. But uh, ironically, the industry uh, survives because of new fishing practices and new trawling practices which come in at that time coincidentally. And so the actual Malaysian fishing catch goes up. So in fact, that part, which was a significant part of the Indonesian campaign, becomes somewhat irrelevant. They are in fact uh, intercepting and raiding and even killing uh, ordinary fishermen, but they're not impacting on the overall fishing industry. 
The sabotage missions and the raids were intercepted by Commonwealth forces at sea in over 50% of the cases. Uh, and what this results in is the Indonesians suffer a total loss of their boats and men whenever this happens. It's a total wipeout. Um, the raids and sabotage missions which actually make landfall are, are all rounded up by the Commonwealth land forces, although some of those operations are quite complicated and in fact involve in quite a few occasions thousands of men. So the Indonesians begin to run out of trained men and equipment. The raids and sabotage missions begin to fade away. Uh, one of the reasons for this, apart from those which I've just mentioned, is that elements of the Indonesian army were not allowing the transfer of men and equipment to the raids and sabotage units. You also have to keep in mind that the communist attempted coup in September 1965 in Indonesia leads to disruption of confrontation policies as the Indonesians concentrate on regaining civil control uh, and order. Turning now to the how successful was the campaign, the maritime war was contained, as I've said, uh, mainly by the elaborate Commonwealth uh, countermeasures and partly by the actions of the Indonesian army. The land war in North Borneo was won decisively. Obviously, we're not going to go into that here. Both campaigns, that is the Maritime Campaign and the North Borneo Campaign, showed the futility of confronting or the continuing confrontation in the face of the Commonwealth's determination to see the survival of Malaysia. Increasing economic and political problems in Indonesia also persuaded the Indonesians to end confrontation. The attempted communist coup and the seizure of power by the Indonesian army brought Sukarno's adventurism and meddling to an end. So they decided it was a good idea to give up? Yes. Getting too expensive, too complicated, and you always have to keep in mind that the Commonwealth's united front, that it, throughout all these years, is right there. And it, it, the Indonesians have to cope with the reality that they're confronting this uh, unified force, the Commonwealth. It's probably the last time we see the Commonwealth acting in that way. Okay. Ian, uh, we're drawing to a close. Have you got any final comments that you might make to uh, on this activity? I, I just follow on from what Andrew said to to say that the as, as the British made their decision to withdraw east of Suez, uh, they had to um, reorganise the arrangements they had uh, politically and of course militarily uh, with uh, the new nations of Singapore and Malaysia. Um, and Australia was involved in that because we had now had a, you know, a, fairly, uh, a fairly important role in that area. And we we're very interested in what the outcome was. What came out of it was a thing called ANZAC, A-N, Australia, uh, New Zealand and the UK, which was a, a tri-service organisation based in Singapore, um, which was meant to uh, support the, the two new nations militarily if required, but more importantly, of course, to, uh, to uh, train them in, in, in the skills that they needed to defend their own countries and to maintain a presence, uh, as Andrew's mentioned, uh, just to warn the Indonesians against any further adventurism. Uh, that, that collapsed in 1971, and uh, what emerged from that was the five-power defence arrangements, the five powers being uh, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, uh, Malaysia and Singapore. And uh, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, this is a long-running thing. Yes, it was. started in 1955. We're still doing it. So it hasn't, it hasn't gone away. I think the development of both navies in particular uh, has a great deal uh, to, to owe to 
the influence and the support uh, given by Australia in particular. And uh, yes, this, this is our longest running military commitment to date. Anything, Steve, any, any final thoughts? No, I just uh, reinforced that, that um, Australia <coughs> was part of this regional stability environment, the creation of it, which has enabled the, the nations and their navies to develop. And, and as Ian said, I think it's largely unsung. Uh, but the other thing is, is that um, in the Second World War, our riverine brown and green water capabilities were but fair miles and STMLs were all vested in reservists and the, 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 the regular Navy didn't have it and confrontation reintroduced that and then we have a continuum of from the Keras to the attacks to the Fremantles to the Armadales all addressing deficiencies in the previous class and only now I think have we re addressed what the real task is for offshore patrol vessels because the next ones are going to be 90 metres and 1800 tonnes um, but that the gestation of our blue or green water capability, which has which has served us very well in, you know, the patrol boat force and border patrol, that thing, was had its gestation in confrontation. Thanks, Peter. Any thoughts? Yes, the uh, talking about the concept that the Australian Navy was sent to the Far East to run cocktail parties. I think the uh, Navy is unique of the defence forces in that it can go to a country, foreign country, and be very friendly, um, keep our good relations there, go in there as a fully operational unit and invite people from a foreign country to come on board and see what our capabilities are. And then, uh, should it be necessary, sail the next day, go outside the 200 mile limit and come back in again if uh, there should be a problem. And we also, I think, it's, in the 1960s, we used to have uh, shop windows off Indonesia. The uh, Navy would show its strength and its ability to hit targets towed by ships during those years. And uh, the cocktail party was just a very, very um, pleasant way of getting around and showing people what we were made of. Andrew, lucky last. Any final thoughts on the Malayan emergency or confrontation? I'd like to comment on confrontation mainly. Um, and there, I, as an operations research analyst, I, I'm rather quick to note that the total number of uh, interceptions, uh, hot interceptions that the RAN was involved in was only three. Whereas when you compare that with the Royal, Stra Royal Navy, they had 40, or over 40. And the Malaysian Navy, they had over 20 and the Marine Police uh, had over 16, uh, which seems to imply that the RAN wasn't doing very much. And this is not necessarily the case. The most important thing is that it was there as part of a deterrent force, and it was part of the uh, tremendous effort which was put in by all the navies in endless interceptions uh, and endless uh, uh, um, police examinations of vessels intercepted in the Malacca and Singapore Straits, in which probably somewhere between, it's hard to just judge, but the figures seem to suggest between 40 and 50 percent of attempted raids and sabotage missions actually turned back. So it was the presence. Thank you. Thank you gentlemen for your time. Um, sadly that's all we have time for this week. Uh, many thanks to uh, Ian, to Andrew, Peter and Steve for joining us today. and. Uh, thanking them for their insights.
And many thanks to you for joining us as well. We look forward to your company for the next episode. Bye for now.